Hardcore Healing with Caitlin D. That's me. And it's me, Neil Lockwood. We have taken a very long absence. And I think our last episode was the coronavirus episode. So I hope we didn't scare anyone <laughs> out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. When do things stop being a hiatus? It was kind of funny because I don't know if you experienced this at all, but I feel like I I knew so much more about the the coming like what was going to happen and like how severe it was going to be because we did our pandemic series yeah did we do it knowing coronavirus was about to hit or did we just happen to cover pandemics i don't remember so it was my i think it was my idea because my roommate um has lived in China and he has lots of friends there and he was hearing about it and they were quarantined. And so I started looking into it on Reddit and I was like, this seems pretty serious. And I would see headlines here and there. And then I was like, Oh no, this is like really serious. And so I was like, ha ha, let's cover pandemics because we're probably about to be in one, but also not yeah. really fully understanding or it's like impossible to grasp how much the world has changed in like the last six months or whatever, like before it actually happened. Longest year of my life. Truly. It's like the fact that like, this is the same year that like, I don't know, like I started, I moved into this apartment January 1st and I started a new job January 3rd. I feel like I've been there for 20 years and I haven't even been going to work most of the time. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I think that's, Partly that, the days kind of meld together, and at the same time, it's a new fucking thing every day. Yeah. Um, per, in particular, I think what I wish more people knew about the virus and pandemics in general and viruses in general is that they don't last forever. Because yeah. I feel like our we obviously have so much misinformation and so much like lack of education around coronavirus because of our government and whatever. But also like, I think so many people are just refusing to quarantine and refusing to wear their masks, refusing to social distance because they genuinely don't understand. They're like, well, I can't live like that forever. So I might as yeah. well just live my life. And if I die, I die. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is like a two-year math sort of thing, even before mm-hmm. this last century of advancement in Western medicine. Or yeah. And whatever, global medicine. When people throw around numbers like, oh, it's only 3%, like, I don't think they realize that when you have 300 million, 3% is still a, like 3 million people fucking dead. That's it's a big number, even though it's a small percent. Well, I think that's, 10%. But I get what you, I get. I think it's a hot. I, for, I, I can't do the math on that either. But yes. Well, it is 300 mil. If it was 300, 1% of 100, one. Sure. So <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a math show. Um, <laughs> welcome for the hardcore math. Yeah. Um, 
But what what frustrates me is I really I I think if people knew like hey this is two years of your life put that in a little perspective like you can miss two Christmases with your family you can miss yeah. like two years I almost of- welcome it. I do tell me about it honestly I was like on uh my other podcast which I started during this quarantine um we were talking about like if you need an excuse to not go home this is like the perfect one so that your like mm-hmm. parents can't guilt trip you for not coming home unless oh they can they're probably <laughs> your parents are probably like queuing on zombies yeah. now yeah, who would think that the zombie apocalypse would just be like boomers on Facebook, like reading memes? It's crazy. The, all of the movies that show USA is like the forerunner when shit hits the fan and everyone's all organized and calm. Oh. Is, is just not, it doesn't hold well. Well, and I can't imagine how many people are going to die after these holidays because I know know. so many, even my friends that like, I mean, they're like smart people. Like a lot of people are traveling and yeah, I, I was all, I was like, I've spent the last, well, two Christmases, I think by my old last year was like my first holidays where I was like straight up, like just had no family to see because my sister got married and I was like, I'm not going yeah. to her husband's parents' house, you know, like they're very <laughs> nice. People. They're super sweet, but I just feel like it just makes me sadder that I don't have my own family, <laughs> you know? So I'd rather do like the solo in LA thing, which is super fun if you can go out and party and like whatever, because there's so many orphan kids in LA. But like if you, this year I was like, oh, finally, like, I won't be alone in being like totally isolated for the holidays and just like basically drinking by myself and walking around, you know, everything's closed. And then everyone has plans. Everyone's going somewhere. And I was like, well, fuck you all. Never mind. Yeah. No, people are wild. Yeah. uh, Anyway, no judgment on that. But today we are coming back. Uh, I really, I've been wanting to cover this for a long time and uh as as you all know we are passionate about our entheogens our psychedelics our alternative healing yes our hardcore healing and what is more hardcore than what is reputed to be the most powerful psychedelic in the world ibogaine ibogaine i feel like no matter how many videos and whatever i listen to about it i still don't really know how to pronounce it i would gain yeah i feel you on that there's gonna be a lot of that this episode <laughs> iboga ibogaine um real quick before we jump in i just want to say my sources because i was telling neil earlier i'm like straight up i just plagiarized for my notes so i did want to cite my sources because if it sounds like i'm reading straight from a book it's because i kind of am uh, I, I took information from, I have a quote from the American Medical Association. From, I have some stuff from NBC News. Uh, I took some text from Ibogaine Explained, which is a book by Peter Frank and Eric Taub. And I also took quite a bit of condensed information from uh, like specifically a retreat center's website. And it was the Tabula Rasa retreat. So up top, I just wanted to say that the reason... We are covering this drug. One of the reasons is because it is known, it, its main reputation in at least the Western world is for being an addiction interrupter. 
and it's for helping people basically eliminate the withdrawal symptoms of particularly heroin and opioid addiction although it also interrupts addiction to all other sorts of substances as well yeah and uh, according to the american medical association on october 31st of 2020 They stated that in in addition to the ongoing challenges presented by the COVID-19 global pandemic, the nation's opioid epidemic has grown into a much more complicated and deadly drug overdose epidemic. And as don't remember, it was already a pretty big deal, too. (laughs) Right. I was going to say that, too. And if you need more info on that, we have a whole episode on opioids. So check that out. Uh, The AMA is greatly concerned by the increasing number of reports from national, state, and local media suggesting increased... The MDMA? The AMA, the American (laughs) Medical Association. Yeah, the band MGMT (laughs) has expressed great concern. (laughs) Our our fan base is dying rapidly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, State and local media suggesting increase in opioid and other drug-related mortality, particularly from illicitly manufactured fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. So we also discussed that in the opioid episode. And um, according to NBC News, 74,000 overdose deaths were counted from April 2019 to March 2020, which was increased from the 68,000 reported for the comparable period one year earlier. So it's rising. um, And basically, people think that it has to do with, for one, um, you know, treatment centers not being available. The stress, oh, that makes sense. The stress of being isolated, quarantine. I know, you know, relapse has been a huge thing for a lot of people who've been sober for years and years and years. No <laughs> meetings going on except like the Zoom ones, but right. that's janky. Well, and imagine if you don't have like reliable internet or, yeah. you know, um, also, I heard that a lot of AA meetings were getting Zoom bombed mm-hmm. for like a while because I, that's, I guess that was a thing to do. People are, are, are mischievous, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, so did you want to start off with some of the science or, or what should we kick off with? Science, roots? Uh, well, the history uh, where I started off looking at it... Um, it was one of the, like, it was really common after World War II with athletes and stuff. It was like a, an enhancer that people would take before performing. And it was a really popular stimulant that a lot of people were doing. Uh, and it wasn't made illegal until like the late 60s um, when the government said that it is highly addictive and a deadly substance. Right. So uh, we discuss, I think, quite a bit in our episode on LSD, sort of how the government just ruined psychedelics for everyone by just going crazy and dosing people in public and making a bunch of people go insane and causing all this panic over these substances that have all these healing potentials, but when used in the wrong context can be terrifying and can lead to death through like accidents and and whatnot. but I, I think one of the, the main advocates for Ibogaine stated that I think the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency in America, has listed Ibogaine as a Schedule One substance, and to be because it is a hallucinogen, and but technically to be a Schedule One substance, it's deemed that it has no medicinal value, and yeah. 
that like it even has cocaine isn't schedule one because they use it as an anesthetic. Right. Um, and that it has basically habit forming qualities. And I became, I mean, anybody who's done this or works with it, it just doesn't have any addictive properties. It would be a very difficult drug to be addicted to. And, um, if, I mean, if interrupting withdrawal symptoms from heroin isn't a medicinal benefit during an opioid epidemic, I just don't know what qualifies something as having medicinal yeah. value. Apparently, opioids. Apparently, just killing the pain yeah. is the only medicinal benefit that matters. So anyway, go on. Oh, um, but between uh, 1990 and 2008, only 19 people died taking ibogaine and there is no number of how many people were taking it because of like the whole illicitness factor of it but uh yeah before that it was originally like used by uh people in i forget which region of africa but i cover a bit of that use it. awesome yeah the pygmy people which mm -hmm. is you know a thing I didn't know that. <laughs> yep, that's a real thing. The pygmies are, are, are true. Um, yeah, so do you know how those people actually died from it? Heart attacks, cardiac arrest. Because okay. if you take too much anything, you're going to fuck yourself over. Right. Um, and I would imagine those people probably had pre-existing conditions because according to everything I read, uh, but granted, I was definitely sticking more to literature that was like, you know, trying to like sort of get people to seek treatment through yeah. with this process. Uh, they do state some risk, but they also like also sources would state that like nobody has ever been hurt from it. So it was a little confusing on that front as far as like whether or not it is dangerous. Yeah. And I've got the, a number of 19 people OD and on Ibogaine. Interesting. I wasn't sure if it was just like people flipping out, um, which I, because I mean, you can't really overdose like on marijuana. Yeah, no. Nah, the only way to die from marijuana is if like a crate of it falls on you, <laughs> or if you just, um, I don't know. I guess driving isn't so great on marijuana, or like if you're like way too stoned, like wandering Not into traffic or something. But, yeah. but that that kind of stuff is so rare because generally I feel like it's more like that scene in Smiley Face. If anyone's seen Smiley Face when she like gets behind the wheel of the car and like she hasn't even left the garage and like she can just hear haunting and then like the devil pops up behind her shoulder. <laughs> like mostly if you're too high, you don't want to go anywhere. Like you, you just don't. Um and I think Iboda uh, is the same situation as far as the trip but i will get into that um later when i talked about what sessions and the experience itself is like as far as its roots in africa it is a uh, central Af it originates from central africa i think the formal like scientific name is tabernathy iboga yeah. the and it's tabernathy boga and it's a shrub that is in gabon and cameroon and the plant is deceivingly simple looking, just has little yellow flowers and a tasteless, sticky orange citrus fruit. But when you scrape off the root bark, grind it into a powder and ingest it, it has powerful psychedelic properties. And it was used by um, the, it, so it's 
integral to the Bwiti spiritual discipline in Western Africa, and that is B-W-I-T-I, Bwiti, and that is practiced among the Babongo and Mitsogo people of Gabon and the Fang people of Gabon and Cameroon, which is an awesome name. And yeah. contemporaries believe that uh, it's it's Bwiti seems like a bit of a mixed bag uh, as far as religions are concerned. It sort of it's non. Uh, it doesn't have so much a theology. It's actually incorporated some Christian theology. It has ancestor worship, animism. It's, it, I wouldn't say it's centered around Iboga, but it is less centralized than a lot of spiritual traditions, um, which has made it, you know, relatively popular and lasting throughout decades. Um, but it is, Ibogaine is at the core of their rituals and beliefs. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the substance is used to, quote, promote radical spiritual growth and stabilize the community and family structure, as well as meeting religious requirements and resolving pathological problems. As far as the actual discovery of the root that has different mythologies, which, of course, makes sense because it's like, how mm -hmm. do you really document someone finding a plant for the first time? Um, and one, and it, like, there are stories such as like a hunter was out and he shot his spear and it missed the wild boar. But when he went to discover it, it was sticking out of the root and then he ate the root. And which I love the idea of like being this, like, killed it. this like prehistoric man and just like, fuck, I missed the pig, whatever. I'll eat this thing, you know? Um, yeah. and, and then just tripping balls, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, in another myth, nomads possessing unusual intelligence. This one's kind of alieny. Um, in one, nomads possessing unusual intelligence and joy introduced Iboga into the settled tribes of Western Africa hundreds of years ago, and then vanished back into the jungle. Um, so I think that's a you know alien one. Um, in mm -hmm. One of the myths, this one's from the book, Ibogaine, I don't fucking know how to say it. Ibogaine explained by Peter Frank and Eric Taub. They, there is a claim that Iboga comes from the African Rift Valley where the human race originated. In this oh. story, early humans ate Iboga as part of their natural diet. It acted as a catalyst for their consciousness and caused them to develop language, a notion of time, and a sense of self. As they migrated out of the Rift Valley, they retained a faint memory of Iboga that inspired the story of Adam, Eve, and the Tree of Knowledge. Same has been said about mushrooms. I'm pretty sure you could say that story, roughly, would apply to quite a few psychedelics. Yeah, stoned ape theory with Tara McKenna is basically it. Mm -hmm. uh, which I'll grab a water real quick. Is what episode is that in that we talked about the stone deep theory? Is that in the mushroom mycology episode? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And that's our first episode, right? Yeah, and one of our all-time favorites. Um, that was an episode that I spent like three weeks editing and like putting all this sound production so on. So much research and, and a very knowledgeable guest. And then I was like, I can't, I literally can't. <laughs> 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 cannot maintain this level of production for no money. Um so French explorers to Gabon were the first uh, Europeans to encounter Ibogaine around the year 1900. 
they developed or they extracted ibogaine hydrochloride from the shrub in 1901, a pair of French scientists, and they began their research into the interactions of the plant with the nervous system, uh, as evidenced by appearance in scientific later literature soon thereafter. Um, then as the century went on, more and more research was conducted and Ibogaine was actually introduced to the French public in 1930. It was marketed under the name Lambarine, which is, hmm. I guess, the name of the town where its borders first found it. And uh, Ibogaine was used as a treatment for depression and a mental and physical stimulant for healthy people at times of great exertion. So kind of similar to the athletes that would use it. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, the average tablet contained five to eight milligrams of Ibogaine and was generally prescribed to treat, as I said, depression, asthenia, which I don't know what that is, convalescence, and some infectious disease. What's convalescence, man? I hear that word being thrown around. You know, Isn't it old? I think it's just getting old. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, convalescent or, at home. Yeah, or I think it's, like, yeah. just when you give up on life and, like, <laughs> yeah. you're just laying uh, in bed for days, which I've yeah. been convalescing on and off throughout this quarantine. Um, so it was available in France legally until 1967 when its sale was prohibited. The pioneering drug researcher Harris Isbell, who was also the director of the National Institute for Mental Health Addiction Research Center, um, in America, performed some of the first American studies, uh, in a, and that was in conjunction with in conjunction with the pharmaceutical firm called CIBA. CIBA. I don't know what it stands for. Uh, they were actually looking to create an antihypertension drug. Um, so that was the first mm-hmm. time I guess it was researched here, and then they became aware of its anti-addictive properties. But uh, all the records of the research were weirdly lost, and the drug was determined to lack commercial viability. So that that happens over and over in in research for plant medicines like this. And you could go like a little bit of the more conspiracy route and be like, you know, the man wants you to be an addict. The man wants you to yeah. die. Like the one, like it's. And but at the end of the day. Um, they explain this in the documentary I watched, which is called I Begin Rites of Passage. Um, uh, and it's on YouTube for free if anyone wants to watch it. It's like 50 minutes. Uh, but he kind of discusses the Howard Lotsoff, who was the, you know, one yeah, of the... the like 16-year-old heroin addict. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he uh, discusses how like basically one of the reasons that pharmaceutical companies haven't put any effort into you know, developing this drug, even though opioid, you know, ep- the opioid epidemic is such a threat to American society, like that to, to pharmaceutical companies, they're like, that's sort of a you problem to the American public. Yeah. They're more concerned with developing drugs that have like potential to increase the value of their stock basically for yeah. their shareholders. That's that's the goal. the goal now. Yeah. And addiction, the whole thing around addiction, because there is such a high mortality rate with, you know, people who are addicted to heroin or opioids. Uh, it's basically just not sexy enough for pharmaceutical industries. It's too, it's too much of a liability for them to take on. So many of those people die that they're just like yeah, like we might get sued so much more than mm-hmm. we would it's actually. It's like admitting fault. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that's sort of really one of the things among, you know, of course, lots and lots of cultural stigma and like just yeah. bad and governance. They want, yeah, they'd lead you to believe they're like, well, you know, they're studying plants all day. They're a bunch of crunchy hippies, probably got too stoned and lost their research. Right, right. Yeah. Placed it. Damn hippies. Yes. Uh, and, also, you know, my personal theory also at the end of the day is like, even if those, their, their, you know, best customers are dying, it's still in a lot of pharmaceutical companies' best interest to keep people addicted to opioids. So, Which isn't that hard to do? <laughs> unpopular opinion. Yeah, unless you introduce Ibogaine. Um, um. I'll talk briefly about Howard Lotsoff. He's so he was the first one to really take Ibogaine seriously in America as a treatment for addiction. I hated the documentary. It was like, or someone, some some of the sources were like Howard Lotsoff discovered Ibogaine. It's like no, they had been using it forever in this religion yeah. in Africa. He didn't discover shit, but he did take it. He was a heroin addict. In he marketed uh, the shit out of it. Yeah, so he basically kicked his heroin addiction. He describes this experience where he tripped for 36 hours. I think he took it in, like, the Netherlands or something and he, when he was 19. And uh, when then he realized after taking Ibogaine that, like... And I think he was just trying to have a trip. Like, I think he was Probably. Just trying, he was just <laughs> trying to do... 16-year-old heroin addict, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was just trying to do drugs. And uh, then at the end of his experience, he realized that he didn't have any heroin withdrawals and that he hadn't, like, shot up yeah. for 36 hours. And which, you know... It, like, this is better. Yeah, if you're a heroin addict, you know that, like... That's... It's not... It's no small thing if you just, like, suddenly don't have any cravings. Um, so basically he, uh, found that the single dose of Ibogaine ha was, oh, sorry. I just said that it ended his physical dependence on opiates and he attended college, he married, and he then began researching, authoring scholarly papers and advocating for the use of Ibogaine in addiction treatment. He, uh, acquired a bunch of patents for utilizing the Ibogaine molecule as an ultra rapid method for interrupting large spectrum of polydrug dependency syndromes between 1985 and 1992. Um, and basically he's been having a, a real hard time of it for the reasons that we already stated. There's been all these trials. There's been, you know, he's proven up, down, left, right, and center that, you know, it is by no means should it be a schedule one substance. Um, but it, he describes in the documentary, like what all the factors that Ibogaine has stacked against it essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's just probably not going to happen. You know, it's, yeah. it's just not a big enough, like profit opportunity for this pharmaceutical companies and for the DEA to take it off schedule one. Um, and it also, because it does promote visions, it gets classified, even though it's like not really, no one ever really describes it as hallucinations, it no, is, it was more of a known as a stimulant for most of its life. Right. But during the sessions, a lot of people on a large dose will experience a flood of visions. And this happens, you know, on ayahuasca, on mushrooms, on yeah. all kinds of things where people experience a lot of like visions of memories as if they're sort of like standing outside themselves and watching these memories and traumatic events happen to them. And so that classifies it as a hallucinogen and basically if you're a hallucinogen you're kind of automatically schedule one in this country. yeah can't have that right um the so, only country it's legal in is new zealand that's right 
Yeah. Um, there are countries where it is, I think, decriminalized mm-hmm. because Portugal. I was, yeah, I was Everything looking in Portugal. I'm honestly, frankly, I would love to do a session. I I'm very interested in it and especially the way it's set up as far as it's just really fascinating. Like I've, I've done an ayahuasca ceremony and uh, the clinics are much, it's more like a rehab, but you go in and it's some, it's sort of like out of a sci-fi novel. Like you go in and you get hooked up to these like things and people are like, you get your own room and you get your, it's very like calm and clinical, but you're pretty much left to your own devices. Uh, but I did look up clinics at one point because I'm like, maybe I should do this. I got a lot yeah. of problems. I don't have an opioid addiction, but Lord knows I have my issues. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> got some other problems and you can go to clinics in mexico and canada like if you're an american you don't have to do that i think we can go to canada right now i don't think we i don't know if ibogaine clinics are open right now frankly but uh oh, yeah yeah maybe um but you know just you know put that in the back of your mind if you're listening and you do have any issues and this is something that interests you just know that uh those clinics are available i don't know as far as cost i would guess it's sort of like rehab or it's like you gotta save like several thousand dollars um but or anyway several hundred thousand i don't think that much i think it's probably like a rehab situation where it's but but it's only a few days i think you spend like maybe 24 hours in the actual clinic so i my guess would be like anywhere from 2500 to 5000 dollars but that's just a guess. No idea. Um, that's based on absolutely nothing. So the U.S. <laughs> go- <laughs> the U.S. government uh, undertook a series of tests on ibogaine between 1991 and 1995 before funding the ibogaine research project, and it, then it was, or before that research project funding was abruptly cut. And so, you know, I don't want to basically necessarily list all these different research studies but it's been shown over and over it does it interrupts the addiction symptoms and do you have the science on that at all um i don't i don't think they really know how it works Mm -hmm. um which is you know understandable because addiction science already is pretty iffy uh yeah but i i know that it's an indole alkaloid, and an indole alkaloid is an alkaloid containing the structural moiety of an indole, and an indole is oh, huh. any aromatic, heterocyclic organic compound. Amazing. Yeah. I so know uh, all of that. <laughs> yeah now i know that too uh, i totally know just your typical tryptamine which is a mono anime alkaloid yeah and i know what anime are, is <laughs> <laughs> yeah if anyone's interested in all of this they probably already know what that means it can also be synthesized too hmm. through a fucking procedure uh you have to get two ido four met thiolene which reacts with the triethyl and converts into n-idosinamide <laughs> and then you add it with some fluoride and that forms 2-ido 3-2-idoethyl and 1-h uh, ethyl 
and then you use the precursor 7-ethyl, 2-ethyl plus the iodo and 1-H and then a couple other things. And then, boom, you've got, you got synthetic. How, who came up with that shit? And how do you get 7-iodo, 3 do you, What store on Etsy sells <laughs> half of these fucking ingredients. Yeah, that's that's all you got to do. I would love to read that like recipe blog. <laughs> like my grandmother when, used to always <laughs> when we were sad or tired or convalescent, she would mix up some Yeah, I some I love crazy I lo- that people fucking I think it's crazy that people invented things like pasta. Like, you know, like, I just think it's like, who tried this at first? And who was like, oh, my God, Mamma Mia. Um, Mamma Mia. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's all you got to do. You just got to get those ingredients, throw them all in a bag, shake it, and uh, boom. Boom. You got your homemade Iboga. So according- You don't even <laughs> care about heroin anymore. You don't give a fuck about heroin no more. So... According to the Bwiti religion, I want to talk a little bit about what the actual experience is like and the like the actual spiritual and, you know, the firsthand personal experience. So Iboga is a living spirit, according to this religion. And it's sort of like Ayahuasca. They talk about it like, you know, it's an entity. It's a god, basically. It's a spirit. Uh, so Iboga is a living spirit with its own intelligence and volition. Um, if it approves of a person who has eaten the plant, which that would suck if it doesn't approve of you. Yeah. Um, the spirit will transport the person to the land of the dead where they can meet their ancestors and guardians, can ask advice, re- request a favor from God, etc. Um, the Bwiti use it for two purposes, uh, small doses at weekly ceremonies and in large quantities when facing a crisis. So it's widely... An- understood that only once or twice in a practitioner's life would they actually take enough iboga to quote break open the head or Whoa. send the soul to the land of the dead so that's like they only do these what are you know what we do in the west is clinical sessions they only do these like floods once or twice in their lives it's and in a lot of indigenous practices like seeking help or seeking that sort of treatment it's like it's very deep undertaking you know you don't take it lightly you don't, you're not like just constantly desperate for uh, the spirit's attention. Like you have to like yeah. actually, you know, be willing to face some shit. So spirit senpai, notice me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during weekly ceremonies, you eat, you just eat a few spoonfuls of the root. So it's, and it sounds like microdosing. It sounds like a lot. So I know, a few right? Spoonfuls. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how it's administered in these clinics, but maybe it's just more concentrated or something. Um, but it's the way they describe the experiences sounds like microdosing mushrooms or LSD yeah. or whatever, because it's they say it leaves them energized and euphoric, but it doesn't induce visions. And these ceremonies mm-hmm. usually last all night and involve singing, dancing, and listening to sermons. Um, sounds the, like African mushrooms. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we've talked about this before, too, and, and pretty much every hallucinogenic <laughs> drug episode that we do, it's like, th- they all do very similar things. It's yeah. almost like they're all, and they're all like, it's weird how they're just completely different, but they all have this, like, remarkably similar effect. And I've only experimented with a few, you know, what would be considered hallucinogens, and frankly, like, the experience depended so much more on my mindset and the setting than it did on the actual substance that I was taking. Yeah. Uh, which we also have talked about. Uh, 
So Western clinical sessions last for two days. Uh, the first 12 hours, you stay alone in a bed, 12 hours to come down. And then 24 hours after that, people report feeling like a newborn baby, but they can get up oh. around and walk around. Uh, you can eat and, and sort of resume stuff. You just feel really like sensitive. So uh, this book broke it down into four phases. Uh, at first, your phase one, first they give you a tiny dose just to see how you'll react, sort of like a test mm-hmm. patch sort of thing. And then if that's if you get the green light, it's you're given a flood dose, which is wow. yeah takes about an hour to kick in, and then another hour or two to basically peep. And usually by four hours, you're having visuals. And like I said, it's not necessarily like hallucinations; it's more like reliving traumatic events, speaking to ancestors, that sort of thing. Um, Ten hours after taking the flood dose is when the experience starts to lessen, and you start to resume to normal functioning. And so that's phase two. And they say that basically you experience exhaustion, but you're closer to your normal functioning. And this one book described it as your mind feels like a dish towel that is being wrung out over and over. Um, And that this is sort of like the difficult time period because it's like a lot of emotional processing from phase one, from what you saw and experienced in phase one. Um, But it's like you're back on on earth, you know, you're like sort of backgrounded in your body. Uh, phase three sounds way worse. It does. Yeah. So they describe basically the end of phase two is when you go to sleep feeling terrible. And then the beginning of phase three is when you wake up feeling amazing. And that's when you realize withdrawal symptoms are gone. You, You don't crave whatever you've been addicted to. Uh, you have lots of energy You're sharp, the cravings are gone. Uh, And then what's considered phase four is like three months later, basically, when cravings do actually, they can return. But hopefully you have actually processed your bullshit to a degree that you can make better choices and you have more perspective and you realize that you are in control. A lot of people, um, and I'll go through this towards the end, but basically a lot of people say that like you you should really have a plan in place. And it's just like any sort of rehab or or whatever you're doing, you don't just quit the substance. You have to quit the substance and then deal with all the shit that was causing mm-hmm. you to use the substance in the first place. That's why they all use the fucking step system, man. Mm-hmm. Every rehab place and all that, it's always 12 steps, man. Because if anybody does them, you'll just be a better person. Mm-hmm. It's like, take a mental inventory. Definitely. Apologize to people you've wronged. It's fucking easy stuff like <laughs> on paper yeah on paper that i was gonna say that doesn't fucking sound easy i don't i just Not hate apologizing. there's people it would be really hard for me to figure out too like who are the people that i've wronged and who are the people that like fucking wronged me and so i don't want to fucking apologize to them for like cutting them out of my life is there a guide guide on that <laughs> like, yeah there's a bunch of them man like who's the bigger bitch in this situation Oh, there's Am I the Asshole on Reddit. You can always post there. Yeah, I feel like that's real dangerous, though, to just open oh, up yeah. your personal life to a bunch of strangers on Reddit. Um, yeah. and, and then expect them to be the moral authority. Uh, so basically, I did want to say, uh, just in case anybody is like sort of wondering about this experience, I really... Everything I was reading, and I've been doing a lot of meditation during the quarantine, a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation. Um, and look at Prince right now. He's, like, covering oh, his he's eyes. Oh, he's chilling. 
He's like he likes to cover his eyes like that when he's napping. It's so cute. She but it looks a like blindfold. But it looks like he's having like a powerful ibogaine trip, and he's just like, oh, <laughs> oh fuck, man. Um, all the sort of like symptoms of this really strong hallucinogenic experience. They're so similar. And again, we've talked about this in like virtually every episode we do on a drug like this, but they're so similar to what happens when you just meditate a lot Mm -hmm. and do a lot of personal work on yourself. Uh, You start to unravel the egoic structure. You start to see your patterns from like this witness perspective instead of being like a person view. Mm -hmm. Instead of being deeply entrenched in them, uh, you sort of disconnect from yourself and see things projected. So one person described their experience during the flood phase as they saw their negative patterns uh, projected in like a thin, it, it was like a thin veil. And it was as if there's, it was trying to show them that like these weren't real, that these were actually just a thin layer over who they truly were, who their authentic self was. And that again is sort of gets repeated by a lot of people who, uh, advocate for the use of ibogaine. Uh, they say that it helps you. It, it, interrupting the addiction helps you become your true embodied self. And it's not necessarily that that gets restored by the drug. It's that you can actually see. It's like it like cleans the window, and you can actually see what that is again when that's just been covered up by all this light, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we we start like addictions are formed because basically like a void is created between our set like a gap is created between ourselves and our souls and this happens through negative programming it happens through trauma it happens through you know someone telling us we're not worthy of love like whatever it is if the further we get away from our soul the more we feel this internal void so when we feel this void we try to fill it with these substances that make us temporarily feel really good whether it's alcohol nicotine food uh you know sex yeah people's attention uh i just start new podcasts uh uh, whatever zone call of duty war zone yeah video games whatever the addiction is um but of course like that can be really destructive over time and to heal the addiction you need to like heal the the void between you and yourself. You need to be able to fill that void with your own, you know, uh, with positive patterns instead of patterns that, you know, can yeah, get a you. life, get a fucking life. Um, so after the treatment, you'll find that like, you might still have the same thoughts and impulses, but now it's a choice. Uh, and again, that comes back to like getting, gaining perspective. Self work. Yeah. Uh, you can, then you can also see the difference between your thoughts. And this is a big thing with meditation too. Yeah. Uh, it's like the biggest, you see the difference between your thoughts and like that are just habitual thought patterns that are like obsessive almost and almost unconscious. And like over here is your intuition. And that's like your higher self telling you all day, every day what to do. And a lot of people say that the Iboja experience it just helps them remember to trust that that inner guidance exists. And I know I've had that experience a lot in meditation. When I first started meditating like over a decade ago, I just wasn't convinced that the baseline of experience, if I devoted my mind to nothingness, that the baseline would come through as like 
a higher self. I was like, who's to say it won't be the fucking devil coming through or like that the baseline of existence is positive as far, like rather than negative. And I still don't know, like if I'm a hundred percent convinced that it's not just a choice that we have to make on some level of like our baseline, like you have to decide like, okay, my baseline is going to be this higher self, you know, and that's what I'm mm-hmm. going to listen to the guidance of. Well, that's um, enlightenment when that's the only thing you listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but substances like this can sort of help you put you back in touch. It's interesting that these substances, like particularly Ibogaine, like they, the actual like cutting out of withdrawal and like the amount of like focus it has on like promoting people's connection to their higher selves it's so like benevolent. It's such a like benevolent spirit, you know? Yeah. Um, as far as practices to stay in this, and again, this is something that like meditation really helps, but um, remain like mindfulness, just focusing on, and this is basically saying like, these all are suggestions from someone who's actually a user on Reddit when I was in the Ibogaine thread that, uh, apply to people who are in phase four where the cravings may be returning, but you're like basically choosing not to live the life of an addict anymore. Um, mindfulness is a big one focus and doing one thing at a time. That's one thing I find really, I fuck up with a lot. Like I'll have to have music on when I'm in the shower or cleaning or making food or uh, be listening to a podcast or talking on the phone or like, it feels like I always have to have at least two things going on. And he really recommends, and honestly, it always makes me feel so much better and more connected to myself when, you know, I just fold my clothes or I just put on my makeup. And like, you know, there's no reason to be like obsessive about it, but it does make a difference, I think, to like every once in a while, just like take a walk without music or your phone or whatever um he also recommends getting out or maybe it's a she i don't know they recommend getting into nature at least you know it's, as Reddit, much. it's probably a dude I know. yeah i know i'm on there um so i said probably meditation of course minimizing technology and you know this one sounds obvious but one useful thing that they suggested was remembering that it's a tool rather than a means of distraction yeah Woo! <laughs> Yikes for my use of technology then. <laughs> um, doing body scans was a suggestion, which I thought was really cool because I actually do that for myself too. Like when I'm I don't feeling, have my scanner. <laughs> when I'm feeling really tired and I, I use Insight Timer, which is like 60 bucks a year or something, but it's an app on my phone that I fucking love. Uh, they should really be a sponsor. Um, I'll just send them that clip. <laughs> yeah. I fucking love this. Um, (laughs) insight timer Um, there's a ton of body scan meditations on there and on YouTube basically it's just bringing attention to different parts of your body what you're doing is establishing presence which you know establishes heart and brain coherence which maybe we'll go into on a different episode it's a whole thing Um, and the final thing is just constantly tuning into yourself and your core. And like, you can do that, you know, throughout the day by just remembering to like breathe into your heart, put your hand on your heart, just remembering to bring your energy back in your body. So you're not like constantly anxiously out here because again, it's like that presence allows you to make choices. Whereas, you know, if you're sort of stuck in this like 
you know, maybe your energy is stuck outside your body just slightly because you're always thinking the next thing you're going to do and then you're, you get overloaded. And so it leads you to use because you, you're, you just are miserable. Um, so yeah, those are my suggestions. And if anyone is interested, I mean, you can really just type in Ibogaine clinics in your area. And, you know, if you're not in the U S it might be easier, but, uh, if this is something that you want to seek out, definitely do your own research. I, and I, highly recommend the book I said, uh, which is Ibogaine Explained by Peter Frank and Eric Taub. Hell yeah. I recommend everybody do this shit right now as you bring your shoulders all the way forward and then all the way up and all the way back and all the way down and then breathe. Hmm. Yeah. Posture is important too. How we hold ourselves definitely can change our perspective. And that shit just feels good too, man. It also feels great. Great. Wonderful. Well, that's all I have on Ibogaine. Yeah, no, Ibogaine. That's what I had. I remember reading one thing. uh, I forget the guy's name, but he bought like a metric fuck ton of the powder um and he was selling it pretty much into the 90s when uh he ran out and uh it was like pretty sought after stuff and people are still trying to sell the name of it because he like marketed it really well Mm. so much of it's marketing it's crazy Yeah. And I mean, it is really sad. Like we are seeing the decriminalization of a lot of plant medicines in different uh, states in our country. Shout out Portland. They just said, fuck it. You can do whatever you want. They're like, you know what? We actually don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, basically do your research and uh, find find the plant medicine for you. That's not the strongest ending, (laughs) but... Um, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely a drug that I think should be, I mean, it's amazing how so few people have even heard of this drug. I know. Yeah, honestly, I know many people that have dealt with either opioid addictions themselves or have lost family members or friends or partners or lovers Mm -hmm. to opioid addiction. And they've never heard of this drug and it's really sad. And I think that, you know, in so many areas of our American lives, as coronavirus is really showing us, or COVID-19 is really showing us, like, uh, our our system values profit, corporate profit over human life. Oh, yeah, the stock market's crushing it. We just passed 30000 for the first time ever on the Dow. Whatever that means. Yeah, I wish I was involved in that somehow because I don't... Get your Robinhood account and buy PLTR before it goes up too high. You can get it around 20. There might be a dip on 1231. Grab PLTR. It's too okay. late for NIO. Text me that information. Is that insider trading? Can we go to jail? <laughs> no, if I were, we'd, we'd, we'd have enough money already if we were doing that. <laughs> uh, true. Yeah, no one wants me. Um, <laughs> that was just a side note, apparently. <laughs> But yeah, drugs like this should be available, especially like 
this could easily be cultivated and just like widely available, especially compared to like methadone, which isn't necessarily yeah. a very effective or safe treatment it's for heroin. Not. They all get hooked on methadone. And literally, why does it have to be schedule one? They had it's not even like it's not promoted. It's like heavily punished. It's really fucking twisted. It's not chill. It's super twisted. If anyone needs more convincing on like how fucked up the government is and like how much they they like just don't understand how to use or experiment with drugs. Uh, have you ever heard of the Edgewood experiments? No. There was a really interesting, I think it was the CIA doing these experiments, but it was very similar to like MK Ultra and that sort yeah. of thing. But they had these people going into, the, or it was the Edgewood Clinic. They were experimenting on U.S. soldiers and they experimented oh. on over 7,000 and they did all kinds of different drugs. They would just dose them with like 300 times a dose of LSD, but then ask them questions in a room for 14 hours. Or they would actually gas them in these literal gas chambers oh, with these different... Um, different war gases that they were experimenting with use for in wartime situations for like disabling the enemy, but not necessarily killing them. So they had this whole air of like, we're trying to like develop compassionate warfare by, by poisoning our own soldiers. Basically. Um, it was really fucked up. There's a last podcast on the left episode about it. It's like one of the way older episodes, but I really recommend looking that up. If you're interested in like horror stories about, the government experimenting on our yeah. citizens and soldiers uh, with these powerful drugs in a way that they they'll do these things. They'll like take THC tinctures where it's like an amount of marijuana that no one would ingest even in their lifetime and like shoot it into someone and then be like, Oh yeah, see, I told you marijuana was bad. And it's like, yeah, the way they tested it was with gas masks on monkeys where they (laughs) just pumped smoke and they had no oxygen for like minutes. It's like, yeah, that'll fuck you up. They're like, oh, see how bad that was for the monkey? (laughs) Look at him. He can't even peel his banana. (laughs) He's retarded. I can't say that. Yeah, you can't say retarded. Oh, Um, man. You're going to have to edit now. No, I'll leave it in. Uh, Neil, oh, sorry. Right. We're done. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this has been an exciting yeah, episode so- of Hardcore Healing. I'll, I'll edit it out if you want me to. Uh, <laughs> now, I've, But now we've talked about it so much. I don't now know. we've drawn it to a point. Uh, well, now for that, we'll have to do our next episode on like <laughs> mental disorders or mental oh, we can get real controversial yeah um but yeah we are happy to be back hopefully we'll get some more consistent recordings out quarantine has been crazy well hopefully everyone stays safe for you know whatever this season but i you know let's not date ourselves uh but it's right before yeah. Thanksgiving and there might be a lot of people about to get infected with covid because nobody oh, yeah. has any fucking chill nope so yeah, so thanks I'll for listening. All at work. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Hardcore Healing Podcast. I think we have a Twitter. I don't <laughs> it's been a while, folks. It's been a minute. But yeah, write us a review, rate us on iTunes. And yeah, this has been Caitlin D. And I'm Neil Lockwood. And thanks for listening.